Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. For the last two episodes, I've been telling you about the path of Jesse Clarence Pratt. In part one, I talked about his violent history towards partners and their children. In part two, I told you about Carrie Lynn Love, the young woman who began working with Jesse and was fatefully chosen to ride with him out of state. Her body was recovered in a pile of gravel at a secluded truck stop after her personal items were found on the highway. Jesse was quickly connected to Carrie and arrested for her murder. Today, I'll be closing out his story by walking you through the trials that took place in an effort to keep him out of society. As graphic as all of these episodes have already been, listener discretion is advised, as I will be discussing the torture Carrie contended with, the details it's claimed Jesse spoke of, and his sexual kinks that may have been connected to the murder weapon. This is part three of The Path of Pratt. Jesse's trial for the murder of Carrie Love was set to begin December 2, 1986. Thanks to Enver Bozgaz, Jesse's court-appointed trial attorney, his motions and hearing requests pushed the start date back by nearly a year. Not only was Bozgaz's goal to be as prepared as possible, but he was hoping that time would allow for public interest to die down. Not long after the motions, Bozgaz removed himself from the case. Peter Richard and Myron Gitneys were now the legal team representing Jesse. As a defense, they decided to stay with Jesse's story. He had dropped Carrie off at the airport. Before the trial began, however, Jesse once again changed his story. Now he claimed that, yes, Carrie had been with him on the drive further than SeaTac, 
saying now that before they left, Carrie had taken a check to the bank. He called her out on what he claimed were missing funds from that check. They argued about the money on and off all day. Eventually, though, he got so frustrated that he pulled to the side of Highway 58, an hour north of Klamath Falls, and he pushed her out of the truck. The last time he saw her, he was throwing her belongings out the door. Finally, it was time to get justice. The trial began with the state speaking about Teresa and what she had been through as a victim of Jesse's. The defense opened with a claim that the investigation had been biased because of Jesse's abrasive personality. First to take the stand was Bruce, sleeping bag man. If he hadn't stopped, Carrie might have never been found. The defense pointed out that the abandoned scout had been near the scene and could have been involved. They even talked to Bruce about the possible red carpet from the floor of the car that could have been related to the fibers under Carrie's nails. Bruce was very annoyed. He had just found some stuff. He was not a car or scene expert. Officers from the scene took the stand. They spoke about the scout and how it wasn't believed to be involved. Detective Cooper took the stand. Things were going well as he talked about going through the items. Then he mentioned the drag mark at the truck stop. Everything came to a halt as the defense argued against using that term. The defense also took issue with the police footage being shown as it was so graphic it could sway the jury. The judge told them that the gruesome elements had been edited out. At every opportunity, the defense, seeming desperate, filed motions for a mistrial. They were all denied. Carrie's father, William, boyfriend Cody, and her Air Force National Guard commander all testified. Tensions rose when Mona arrived to take the stand as Jesse had begun a rumor that a blonde woman was going to come to the courthouse to blow some people away. Nothing happened. Mona simply spoke about how nervous Carrie was about Jesse making a pass at her, which again stopped the trial under hearsay claims. Once allowed, Mona continued. It was damning to hear Jesse had asked if anyone had found Carrie's belongings on the side of the road before anyone even knew something was wrong. She suddenly claimed that Jesse had asked her to lie about the pillows in the truck. Speaking of, Connie told the jury that she was able to identify the pillow as being one from her home and that she had seen the duct tape on the cab's floor. Kelly, Carrie's former roommate, testified about how Carrie came to work with Jesse. She talked about how the waitress told Jesse that a man wanted to talk to her. He never asked any questions or about qualifications. She just sat down and was offered the job. Once working there, Carrie would often come home crying because Jesse was treating her so poorly. Next was Louis Randolph, who had been at Northern Star to get a check. He mentioned how Jesse's checks were known to bounce, which was met with objection. It was decided no one could mention Double Jack as that company wasn't involved. Louis also couldn't talk about overhearing Jesse and Carrie argue about money and Los Angeles. The defense started questioning Louis and got really specific about his work. When asked why by the judge, they claimed that if Lewis was keeping inaccurate documentation or was dishonest about his mileage, then he could not be trusted as a witness. They even asked him straight up if he killed Carrie, to which he answered no. After fixing his brakes, he left for California. Once he arrived, he was talking with some folks about meeting up with Jesse. That was when he learned that even though he had left much later, Lewis arrived only two hours behind Jesse leaving him wondering what kind of extended stops he had taken. Missing Jesse, Lewis spoke to Mona, who sent him to Phoenix. He was supposed to get a trailer from an impound lot, but it wasn't there. Calling NST again, he was assigned a load pickup in Fresno. He picked up a trailer of tomatoes and drove them across the country to Philadelphia. 
Arriving on the East Coast, the load was refused. He tried to call NST again, but the phone was now disconnected. It took him eight weeks to make it back to Washington. Getting home, he learned of the arrest. It was clear he had been sent on a fool's errand to keep him from being interviewed by police. After the arresting officer in Arizona told his story, the medical examiner, Dr. Robert Jameson, testified. He spoke about the location of the tape marks on Carrie's face, below her ear, on the front of her ear, along the jawline, under the jaw, across the cheek. There weren't tape marks on the other side of the cheek as it had been crushed. Again, an objection because of the graphic nature of the evidence from the defense was dismissed. The medical examiner continued, The tape marks made it clear that the cause of Carrie's death was asphyxiation. Additionally, she had fluid in her lungs. This showed that her suffocation was a slow, torturous process. It took no less than 30 minutes and probably lasted for several hours. The tape marks on her wrists and back showed that she had been restrained with her hands behind her back, which left the residue. Another denied request for a mistrial from the defense. As for the 12 unusual stab wounds that were one-eighth of an inch in diameter, the ME also believed that these could have been caused by something akin to an ice pick. These wounds were found to be all over Carrie's spine in her mid-lower back, another right above that, another even higher on the spine. Another was where the spine and skull meet. The sixth wound was in the midline over the abdomen, and it was several inches deep. A seventh wound was over her heart. She had 12 of this nature. This ME confirmed the original autopsy, that Carrie had died due to being stabbed in the heart combined with the suffocation. The crushing wounds with the broken skull, the ribs, and the broken neck came after death. Carrie also had a fingernail that was torn from the bed and another bent backward. There was foam in her trachea, which indicated she had been suffocated for some time. Though once she was stabbed in the heart, she was dead within a few minutes. Detective Cooper went back on the stand to discuss the mask of paper towels. He had created a mask of his own from towels and duct tape and put it over a styrofoam head to show how it was used on Carrie. Cue the defense's tantrum. At cross-examination, the defense laid into Cooper for not processing the abandoned scout with the same scrutiny they tested the truck. Okay, but that car was nine miles from the closest piece of connecting evidence. Oh, and they did run it for fingerprints. Neither Jesse nor Carrie's were found. In fact, the owner of the stolen scout even came to court. He said that based on how much gas had been in the car when it was stolen, they would have taken it just as far as it was dumped. It was clearly used for just a joyride. Experts testified the blood on the pillowcase was Carrie's. Jeff from the gas station gave his testimony. Finally, when an expert used the term drag mark, neither side had to stick with saying a blood-stained depression in the gravel. Luminol found blood on the door in the cab. Hair and blood was in the drag mark, which matched Carrie, as did biological evidence on the tape and towels. The fibers from the sleeping bag and those found in the cab of the truck were a match. The red fibers from Carrie's nails were a perfect match to the fibers from Jesse's T-shirt. They were even able to locate the exact spots on the shirt where the fibers had been scratched out. Those lined up with the markings on Jesse's body. Vaginal swabs showed a matching blood type to Jesse, but that wasn't much of a reveal since he had claimed that they had had consensual sex. Then there were the paper towels. The ones found in the cab matched the brand of the ones used in the mask. 
Upon closer inspection, it was found that the towels on the mask had a peculiar line of dots. These roller markers are usually meant to leave a design like a quilted bounty. However, when those markers get worn down, they leave a line of matching holes. The forensic scientist investigating the towels took the ones from the truck and went around to dozens of local stores buying 100 rolls. Comparing all of them, only the used roll in Jesse's truck had the mismarked pattern, which perfectly lined up to those from the mask. That same scientist also burned some paper towels down to ash and processed them. They had the same levels of the same types of metal in them. Yes, paper towels have metal in them. That was a fun fact to learn. Prosecutors explained the crushing of Carrie had come from Jesse's truck, but they didn't go into much more detail than that. The defense's medical expert said that if that was the case, why didn't the tire pattern repeat? This expert couldn't test the pattern himself because he hadn't been given a copy of the information. He also claimed that since these were supposedly made post-mortem, the markings would be different because the skin would be different. Standing in front of the jury, he said, Since it's close to Valentine's Day, we'll draw a heart, which he did, before explaining how hearts work and that Carrie wasn't suffocated. And even if she had been, it wouldn't have taken two hours. That Valentine's Day just stuck out as how grotesque. Like, I'll just draw a big heart for Valentine's Day while I talk about how she was stabbed in her heart. Good Lord. Then Jesse took the stand. What? Yeah. The Hell's Angel reject, as Carrie's mother described him, started by talking about being a trucker. He got so caught up, he actually had to be stopped. In regard to the trip, he claimed Carrie had wanted to fool around as soon as he got her into the truck. So they stopped in Evergreen and had sex. That morning, she had gone to the bank and was supposed to get $600. When he asked for it, she only gave him $400, and she wouldn't say where the other two were. He was so angered, he sent her to the sleeper for a silent timeout. At dinner, they argued about it again. As they were driving, he demanded to know about the money. She told him to stick it up his ass, so he hit her in the chest. That was when he pulled over and kicked her out. When presented with his own birth certificate, Jesse claimed both of his parents were dead and the birth date and year were inaccurate, and the woman claiming to be his mother was not. It was felt that this was a ploy to cause doubt for the jury when Elizabeth had her turn on the stand. As for the mask and all the paper towels, he had lost his gas cap along the way and had plugged it with makeshift paper towel caps several times. Later, a man named Barry would testify that he had sold a gas cap at the time in question to a flustered man driving a Kenworth truck who had stuffed the tank with paper towels and now had fuel everywhere. Jesse's alibi was an issue, not just because it was so ridiculous. He had already told several people he had dropped Carrie off at the airport. Some people, like Mona, were even told about the airport two days before Carrie's body was found a time when he would have known he would need an alibi and it wouldn't make sense to change the story to her being dumped on the road. Going on, Jesse admitted to lying in his driving log from the 16th through 19th. His eight years serving time on and off in Alaska was brought up, as was the theory that he had taken some of Carrie's jewelry and run her over in an effort to disfigure her, making identification more difficult and therefore giving him time to build the story. His mother, Elizabeth, spoke about the time that she asked Jesse to seek professional help and he flipped out on her. 
So she went on about how the only time Jesse contacted her anymore was for money or if he was in jail. When he called during his criminal run in Alaska, he told her to tell the police he was a good guy who owned a trucking company. When she wouldn't comply, he threatened to have her killed. His threat of picking up the phone and having her taken care of scared her. She had even spoken with a lawyer, documenting that if anything ever happened to her, it was Jesse, her own son. She talked about his claims of a head injury from his days as a paperboy, a job and injury she was never aware of. As he got older, he started to make claims of being adopted or being raised by an alcoholic, drug addict, sex worker mother who abused him. She wished that instead of being called to testify, she had been called because he had been in a fatal accident. When Jesse called her after the extradition to Klamath Falls, she said that she would not lie for him. The threats and curses began. That's when she hung up and made the promise that she would never take another call from him. Cecilia, his half-sister, was in a panic when the police contacted her. She thought Jesse had either killed their mother or that the police person was actually connected to Jesse and was there to kill her. She was so scared of him that she had actually trained her children how to do drills that involved hiding spots in case he was to ever return. As for Carrie, Cecilia felt there was no way she was Jesse's first murder victim. And how she was killed? That seemed like what he would do. He wouldn't be quick about it. He would inflict as much pain as possible. She felt he should get the chair because he could never be rehabilitated. She did recognize that she wasn't around all the time, but she had never witnessed or had knowledge of any sexual abuse against him. Teresa had the same response to the police as Cecilia did. She was frightened that it was someone Jesse had sent. By then, she was back in Missouri, and it took Cooper sitting down with her and talking things out for her to be willing to testify. On the stand, she told the story of her harrowing encounter with Jesse. The defense closed, saying the investigation was biased. Police built a case against Jesse. They weren't led by facts or evidence. They questioned the accuracy of the labs used. They again brought up the scout. They even asked, if Carrie scratched Jesse, why didn't she have blood under her nails? Perhaps she had washed her hands between scratching him while they were making love and being murdered. There was no way to convict him as there were no eyewitnesses and no murder weapon. Although Detective Cooper would later mention that most truckers keep ice picks in their toolbox to get rocks out of the tread, and Jesse didn't have one of those in his toolbox. The state closed by reminding the jury that it wasn't their job to convict Jesse for the rape and kidnapping of Teresa or for being an asshole. They were only judging for the murder of Carrie. Prosecutors reminded the jury of his ever-changing story, how he was building an alibi and changing as he saw fit. There was a new blanket in the truck because he no longer had a sleeping bag. They went through all of the evidence, reminding them of Jesse's hatred of women as they did so. The arguments ended with the statement, Although everyone else in this courtroom views Carrie's death as a tragedy, the defendant, while professing his innocence, obviously feels no remorse about his having contributed to her death by shoving her out of the truck on a lonely road in the middle of the night in a fit of anger, thus leading to her being killed by someone else. But there was no one. No someone else. There is no phantom killer in this case, ladies and gentlemen. The jury left to make their decision on February 11, 1988. Ten hours later, they had a verdict, guilty of the crime of aggravated murder. Five days later, Detective Cooper was back in court. 
The case was almost thrown out when it was learned that the night before deliberations, he was walking jurors to their car when one of them asked if Jesse was dangerous, and he said, yes, he's probably the most dangerous person I have ever worked. Whoa. He did the right thing, though. Realizing his mistake, he actually contacted the DA. The judge conducted some interviews, and two alternate jurors were given the place of the two involved in the conversation. How pissed would you be as a juror? You've sat through this case. You're going into deliberations tomorrow. And some and a witness and decides to Bob say that over to here. You? Ugh. Oh, Ruined. and then to be kicked off. Oh, I would be livid. I mean, I'm so glad that he went and told someone and said, oh, I screwed up and I just responded without thinking because that could have been even worse. But oh, those jurors, I felt so bad for them. At the penalty hearing, Elizabeth, even after all of the abuse Jesse had inflicted on her, could not bring herself to ask for her son to be put to death, though she did acknowledge that he was too dangerous to be free. Two hours and 45 minutes after deliberations began, the jury decided on the death penalty. Because of this, the case started to go through the automatic appeals process. On January 11, 1990, the case was in front of the Oregon Supreme Court. They decided that Teresa's testimony should not have been presented in the trial. It should have only come up in the sentencing portion as a testimony to his character. Jesse Pratt was granted a new trial. On March 2nd, the second trial for Jesse began. The same judge was presiding, but it was all new legal counsel. Bozgaz was back as Jesse's defense lawyer. Jesse showed up with a fresh haircut and shaved face. This time, the focus was going to be on Jesse's psychology. Doctors testified to his low IQ, his issues with memory and reading, and that he had a personality disorder. His IQ was higher now, closer to 78. There were talks about the sexual abuse he claimed to have experienced from his stepfathers and from a woman who was a friend of his mother's. As much as the defense felt the abuse was the reason for his impairments, their own medical expert admitted that Jesse's unpredictable nature made him dangerous and that he should be locked away. Several inmates took the stand to talk about Jesse's constant threats. He threatened to kill at least two of them. Obviously, this is, like all of our episodes, graphic and terrible, and this part's just really bad, so I just want to give you a heads up. One claimed that Jesse bragged about killing some broad and said, It was neat. I put her head under the back wheels and drove over her. You should have heard her head pop. Several others testified to this confession. One even said Jesse had been trying to find someone that would kill Jeff, the kid from Red's Tires. As a Russian immigrant, Bozgaz's accent was thick and it could be difficult to understand him when he got worked up. And worked up he got. He would pound witnesses. Why didn't you test the cigarette you found at the rest stop? Well, because neither Jesse or Carrie smoked. Why not test the earring that was recovered? Because that technology didn't exist yet. Why not cast every print at the site of the body? Because that's a ridiculous request. There were many returning players. First was Bruce, then Detective Cooper, who was much more cautious with his words, then the other officers, the criminalist. Emmy Robert Jameson was back to talk about Carrie's injuries. The defense hounded him about a time of death and a thermometer, which is mentioned dozens of times throughout the trial. 
Someone had a thermometer, but I guess it was broken, like accidentally stepped on. And Bozgaz took real issue with no one going miles away to a store to just get like a store-bought thermometer, which wouldn't have been up to code or valid in court. Between how long she had been dead, which they believed was hours, the cold temperatures, and that she had been buried under cold gravel, the temperature was moot. Connie once again confirmed her ownership of the pillow. It was mentioned that the pillow was mass-produced, but she was missing one. Cody, the boyfriend, Jeff, the gas station attendant, and Mona all returned to testify. Mona was somehow still supportive of Jesse, believing in his innocence. Perhaps it was too scary to think about the fact that she was supposed to be the one with him and could have easily been the victim. Elizabeth talked about visiting her son three times while he was in jail. She discussed the conversation she had with him after the arrest, and he said, if she had just had sex with me the way I wanted, I wouldn't have needed to kill her. To discredit Elizabeth as a witness, the defense was able to find documents from the Office of Veterans Affairs. It showed that Jesse Pratt Sr. had applied for VA benefits after the war and had actually lived until 1979, not dying in World War II as she thought. Oopsie. I was able to find divorce documents on Ancestry, so that doesn't mean that she was privy to them, though. And it was claimed that Jesse Sr. perhaps switched dog tags during battle to fake his death. Whoa. He would go on to remarry in 1966. So even though he didn't know his father, there's still a shared bond of conning. Yeah. Yeah, I was deep in the DNA. Yeah. Tracking down a sex worker Jesse had been with just 15 hours after the murder, April was brought to the stand. She testified to the kinks Jesse enjoyed, which involved welding rods. Teresa also knew of Jesse's penchant for putting small rods into his urethra. What? Except with her, it had been the thermometer attached to his truck. He uh. got excited watching the temperature go up. <gasps> I am so grossed out. Oh, just you wait. While Jesse was in prison, he was assigned to the welding shop. On at least one occasion, oh. he had to get medical treatment <gasps> for urethral bleeding. And I looked it up. Welding rods are little strips of metal. They look like sparkler fireworks to give you an idea of, yeah. you know, size. I've heard this is a thing. Yeah, there's, Josh, what's that word? It is called sounding. Sounding. And I've seen that before and you put the Why rod in and you like. that name? I need to. Well, because sometimes it's like it's tapped. And so the, the oh. ringing vibration of the ding runs through the penis to cause sensation. I don't know that that's what this was. I think he was just putting things in there. Diane, another sex worker, also testified to Jesse using a welding rod sexually on at least two occasions. April had seen Jesse also use knitting needles. Oh, those are thick. Another sex worker who had been with Jesse in some threesome situations, Sandy, who also went by Sunshine, spoke to this. Sandy said that they were supposed to join Jesse in a threesome with Carrie, but it never happened. They also said Jesse was often carrying 12-inch long metal knitting needles in a sunglass case, which he used for sex. It was speculated the knitting needles or welding rods could have been the murder weapon. Oh, gross. Because it was the size of a knitting needle, basically. How big is this glasses case? I know. I'm just, uh, that's what I was are thinking. They, or maybe they are like foldable needles? Or just on the end for the sharp 
point. Oh, I don't know. Oh, yeah, maybe. What, when was the 80s, right? Yeah, late 80s, I mid mean, 80s. The, we had some big glasses then. That's true. And Jesse did wear some real yeah, those are, pervy glasses. I did yeah. the blog yesterday. Oh, and yeah. And he's just, he's yeah. a precious yeah. angel. Louis Randolph, the man who was sent on the tomato run from hell, couldn't testify at the second trial. Though I can only find records relating to Lewis and his wife Jada arguing with neighbors about driveway space and restraining orders, it is said that she hired a houseless person to kill Lewis. Lewis went missing in January 1991, but wasn't reported missing by his wife until May. After getting a tip that Jada may have been involved, police confronted her and she took them to the body that July. He had been shot and buried near Gold Bar, Washington, and Jada assisted in the burial. And I wish so badly I could have found an outcome. I'll just keep looking and let you guys know. A new witness for the state was Peter McDonald. He had worked as the director of tire design for Firestone. He went on to write the actual book on tires, Tire Imprint Evidence. Learning from the first trial, the state wanted to prove Jesse had run over Carrie after murdering her. Peter took photos, impressions, and carbon rubbings of each of the 18 tires on Jesse's truck. They had recently been retreaded, and this actually made it easier for the investigation because every tire had individual differences. Using life-size photos of Carrie's arm, which had the most distinctive bruising, Peter held up a carbon rubbing of the tire print. He explained that because of the retread, there was a slight difference in the shape on the tire. This is a little hard to explain without a visual, but I'll try to give you an idea. At the edge of the tire, which was the angle it was believed that this occurred, there was a pattern of a line and an arch and a line and an arch, and the lines were all the same length. So let's say they were one inch long, but the retreading had changed one of those portions where they reconnected it, and that line was, let's say, now 1.25 inches. Does that make sense, you guys, that it where they reconnected that tread, it it changed the length. Yeah, it makes sense. Great. To me. You. We're talking retreads? We're talking retreads. That's going to change that measurement. It certainly is. And that is confirmed. Holding the pattern of the tire to Carrie's arm, it was clearly a match. To further explain the markings, Peter made a stamp of the unique tire tread. He then pushed it into red ink and onto his arm, creating a nearly identical marking to that on Carrie. The tire with this mark was on the right side furthest to the rear. He made a diagram showing how if Carrie's body was laying down and Jesse turned the truck just so, the edge of the rear tire would have gone over her perfectly. The defense argued this a lot. A tire mark is fine, but there are millions of these tires in the world. But when investigators checked with the tire's manufacturer, it was found only 300 of that style and only 100 of that size were in use. Using a diopter lens on the tire, the words Puget Sound Tire Company could be seen. They had done the retreading. A sales slip was found for Northern Star. The nail in the coffin was that a check was found. Dated June 4, 1986, it was made out to Puget Sound Tire Company for $278.15. It was on a Northern Star Trucking Company check, and it was signed by Carrie Love. Bosgaz made quite the scene with this, splattering ink around with the stamp. He even asked Peter if tests were done where they ran over bodies. The courtroom laughed. Lying down on the ground, he asked Peter to show him how it happened. He changed his mind when the 200-pound tire was brought over to be put on top of him. 
This time, Jesse did not take the stand. The trial was coming to a close. At this point, the defense just wanted to keep Jesse from getting the death penalty, so they argued that there was no sign of rape and that she was dead when she was run over, so there shouldn't be an aggravated charge. This was dismissed. While the state reminded everyone of the evidence, even if some was circumstantial, the defense was grasping at straws. They said Sunshine slash Sandy had thought Jesse was nice, so maybe the needles were to make something for a grandchild. Maybe Carrie was found in the nude because a lot of people sleep in the nude. As soon as old Bozgaz wrapped up his closing arguments, he said, Deuces, I'm leaving on vacation and have to go catch a plane. Which is not really what you want from your lawyer. Nope. Could you at least wait for the verdict? It's like, no, I would like to leave on a very low note. (laughs) Actually, the highest note he's going to have in regard to this case. You can't fire me, I quit. Exactly. The instructions and case were turned over to the jury. It took until the following day for them to come back with a guilty verdict for aggravated murder. However, it took 11 days for the sentencing trial. Now that the state learned its lesson about character testimony, they had as many ex-girlfriends, wives, and victims as they could find testify to Jesse's violent ways. How he would hit them, stalk them, disable their cars. He would even try to run these women off the road with his truck or would actually rear in them in his car. Teresa and David talked about the kidnapping incident. Cecilia and Elizabeth shared how they live in fear of their brother and son, respectively. Of the 12 character witnesses provided by the defense, those who gave, well, he hasn't threatened to kill me, testimony, were mostly Klamath County jail personnel, but no one was a huge fan. They went so far as to call on Jesse's childhood reverend from Alaska, who could only say Jesse had been a good kid. He wasn't even sure how he felt about the death penalty because his own daughter had been murdered in Alaska. The defense's final hope was the child sex abuse expert who was only making guesses about Jesse's condition as he had not conducted any tests with him. This expert was relying on testimony, police records, and other doctors' reports, which took Jesse's accusations at face value. He knew nothing of Teresa's case or of any of his other violent behaviors. In closing, Bozgaz started by making a bad joke that left no one laughing, something about the difference between running over a skunk and a lawyer. Hilarious after the photos the jury had to see involving someone being driven over. He said that they shouldn't give the death penalty to a disabled man, which is true. Besides, if they gave him the 30-year sentence, he would be an old man when he got out and he wouldn't be a threat to society. Mm. (laughs) Your favorite. It was worth considering that it's not like Jesse had planned on killing Carrie. He wasn't like Ted Bundy or something. On April 17, 1991, Jesse Pratt was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Connie Love gave an impact statement. If Carrie were there, she would ask Jesse why he did that to her. She had trusted him. Connie expressed the pain of not having been there for her daughter when she was most needed. Throughout both trials, Connie Love was in attendance. She couldn't take her eyes away from Jesse's enormous hands, knowing they had been the ones that took Carrie's life. In total, the trials, motions, and appeals cost the taxpayers about $500,000. Appeals continued but were denied. Everyone who saw the case agreed. If Jesse had been in Walla Walla for the decade he should have been, none of this would have happened and Carrie Love would still be with us. Jesse Pratt received two breaks. 
One, Oregon hasn't put anyone to death since 1997, and since 2011, no Oregon governor has signed an execution warrant. And in 2009, when Jesse was 74, he was removed from death row when the Supreme Court rightfully ruled that no one deemed mentally retarded could be executed. Jesse Clarence Pratt remains at the Snake River Correctional Institution. He is now 89 years old. He is the oldest lifer inmate in Oregon, edging out Richard Marquette from our Overcorrecting Their Failure episode by just five months. And that is the story of Jesse Pratt. Wow. I'm still stuck on the sounding. (laughs) Well, yeah, for anyone that's not heard of that, that is an actual kink or, you know, sexual preference that some people have for sensation. But the idea that he could have killed her with that. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. And that he had metal knitting needles. The fact that they were a foot long because she had that really deep wound in her abdomen and that he was known to just have them with him is concerning. And that's a really easy thing to get rid of. Yeah. You're never going to find that. That's a very sad story. Yeah, it's a horrible story. And as always, someone lost their life. A woman lost her life because a man was given another chance, even though he had proven how violent and awful he was. This was a real beefer of an episode. I actually had six more pages of information that I cut out because there are just so many interesting details in this case, many of which I found in Jack Jeek's book, Fatal Journey. Pros of this book all of the details, and it's easy to follow for how many people are involved. Cons. If you like reading pages and pages of quoted testimony, this is the book for you. So Josh, you'll love it. If you think I explained who Bruce was too many times, imagine more detail like that every time regarding every person. It was not only painfully redundant at times, but it had spelling errors And for being only 20 years old, the language was pretty archaic. Jack said that Sandy, whom he referred to as a transvestite, but I believe is transgender, might not have been a reliable witness. He added his opinion that it was surprising Sandy didn't use ghetto syntax, even though they were from the ghetto. But there was still the use of jive talk. He said that most men would have found Jesse's taste in women to be toward those who were overweight, sloppy, unskilled with professional grooming, with garish makeup and outdated hairdos. Nancy, the wife that was sold to Leroy, Jack said that she was unquestionably the most pathetic as she testified to her ex-husband's lethal abuse. Now, I say these things just to give a heads up. It's a great reference if you're looking to get more detail and you want to know all about this case. But it's also good to know what you're getting into. I did some digging and found that Jack has since written other books and he's been involved in movie production. But I felt like he only wrote this book because he, too, had worked at Firestone as the director of new product development and his buddy had helped solve a murder. So that's just my two cents on the book. Uh, If you want even more information or you want some visuals, especially for, you know, the tire imprints and all of that, there is a Forensic Files and New Detectives episode. Neither of them go into too much detail as far as Jesse's past or his other victims, but it was really cool to see the reconstructions and, and how they figured this all out because it really was actual good police work and really good forensic work that closed this case. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to be done with Jesse Pratt. I don't think that I will forget about him or Carrie for a while. I 
part of me, you know, as always, it's like, can I just go and talk to him and be like, where's Virginia? Can we just, you're 89 years old. Can we tell her family what happened? That's the girl that was at the apartment complex. And so now when you have the full picture of who Jesse is, you know, you look at Virginia's story on the Charlie Project and it says in her complex was Jesse Pratt, who was looked at as a suspect or something. And you go, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why that guy. And now you go, oh, God. Yeah, this definitely young, was him. It's much different, right? This young black woman, 19 years old, leaves her apartment to walk to another apartment and disappears. And Jesse lived there. It seems kind of inconceivable that someone else with that kind of drive and desire to do such harm was also there. It'd be really nice if before he goes on to his next adventure, hopefully somewhere torturous, if he would share that because that would just be nice for her family. So So now you all know Jesse Pratt. Now he claimed that, yes, oh my gosh, my phone is on. I what am a so pervert. sorry. Because I was waiting to hear from you if you were getting food and process them. That, hmm, this tongue, this tongue. That's why you can scrub surfaces with it. <laughs> this one side is made of an SOS pad. Oh, they should make that. Shark Tank. It'd be hard to be on a roll and with the perforated edges. Why must you crush my dreams? Because I <laughs> rule my life with logic. <laughs> Boo. Later, a man named Barry. A man? Man. A named man Barry. I love a good man named <laughs> Barry. I bit my tongue a little and then I couldn't say injection. Ouch. Just a taste bud, you know? Just a little. Just a little You don't nibble. need it. You just don't a little need nibble. it. Get rid of it. <laughs> Many of which I found in Jack, in Jack Geek's, no, Jeek, Jeek. Many of which I found in Jack Jeek, <laughs> Jack Jeek, Jack Jeek's book. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls.